the Old Testament book of Judges, we read about 400 years of history in the life of Israel, about 12 judges. Uh, some of those judges were righteous people, individuals who were godly. Others were like Samson. It's kind of interesting because usually when we think about Samson, we think of this great biblical hero. The truth was is he came from a great family, had no excuses. He had unusual abilities and talents, and he wasted those. Uh, we, we hear about him doing great feats, but it's like he was there to protect and provide for Israel, to, to set his people free. And, and it's like you've got some kind of football player who's spiking the ball in the end zone and telling everybody how great he is when his team is losing by 42 points. It's a life that was wasted, unrealized potential. And what we've been looking at is we've been looking at the flaws in his life because we're all susceptible to those same flaws. Last week, Micah led us in a study about pride. And if you haven't seen that message, by the way, go online, lakepoint.org. It's free for you to watch. And watch that message. It's the best message I've ever heard on pride. And it's something that we all struggle with. Well, this pride in Samson's life created an environment in which failure would certainly happen. And it was the environment of isolation. To be pride is to lift one up, to elevate one above others. He thought he was stronger. He thought he was smarter than everyone else. And as a result, he didn't have any companions. He didn't have anybody with him. As you read through the four chapters of Judges that talk about Samuel, he's all by himself. A particular passage that struck me as I was reading the book is Judges 14, verse 10. and talks about when... Uh, Samson was going to his own wedding. It said, and then Samson's father accompanied him to Timnah for the marriage. And Samson hosted a party there, for this was customary for bridegrooms to do. Verse 11 says, when the Philistines saw that he had no attendance, they gave him 30 groomsmen who kept him company. Does that seem peculiar to anybody else but me? I mean, I understand when you have to rent a tux, but when you have to rent groomsmen? The guy showed up at his own wedding and he didn't have any buddies. I was at a wedding of a, a dear friend a couple of weekends ago and I was once again reminded about uh, weddings, how they, there's so many dimensions to them and one of them is about lifelong friendships. And I'm looking over at the, the bridesmaid and they're all acting like sisters and they're all telling stories and the groomsmen are talking about the tough times they went through and the great times they went through. It's all about these extended relationships. Samson's wedding, they have to invite some strangers to stand up for him. And friends, this is not just peculiar. This is a pattern throughout his life. In fact, as you look at his life, you don't really see any relationships other than the ones that he had with his parents, and he didn't really have a choice about that one. And even those folks he's estranged from, he, they try to advise him and get close to him, and he pushes them away. You could say, well, Steve, what about the three women? The three women, when you look there, it's all about lust, not about relationships, certainly not about doing life together as he just keeps changing those relationships, as many people do. So what's going on there? It's about isolation because what happens is Samson never fully grasped the fundamental importance of this thing called community. Go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, the first chapter, you see God creating the earth and declaring what he created good. There in verse four, he creates the sun and the moon and he says it's good. In verse 10, he creates the land and the sea and he separates them and he declares it to be good. 
In verse 12, he creates asparagus and broccoli. Even spinach. And he still says it's good. You'll learn that later on in life, kids. It's good. First time in all of history that God declares his perfect creation as less than good is found in Genesis, the second chapter, in verse 18. It says there, and then the Lord God said, it is not good. What is not good? For the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, this is amazing because God says it's not good. What's not good? For man to be alone. What do you mean man be alone? God was there with him. God's making a radical statement here. He's saying being there, God being there is not enough for man. You've said it, I've said it, we've all heard it. God is all you need. Now that's true if you're talking about salvation, if you're talking about forgiveness from sin, God is all you need. But when you talk about relationships, it's not true. How do I know it's not true? Because God says it's not true. The all-knowing, perfect God designed us, each one of us, for community. The Bible says that we were created in the very image of God. The essence of God is rooted in community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is one, and yet even the one God, you'll find community. To be created in God's image is to reflect the communal nature of God. And so very, from the very beginning, God said, it is not good that man shall be, uh, should be alone. Therefore, I will make a helper fit for him. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Jared took us to Genesis, and he talked about this particular scripture in Genesis 2, uh, verse 18, and he talked to us about the Hebrew word ezer. And that word means to rescue. It also means strength. By the way, there's a great book that I just read last week, finished last week. It is the best book I've ever read in my entire life on marriage. It's called The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy Keller. Some of you are fans of uh, Dr. Keller's. He's a pastor in New York City. Just great book on marriage. And he speaks about this passage as well. In uh, Genesis, the second chapter, verse 18, he says, I will make a helper. The word helper here is the word ezer. It means rescue or strength. Now, don't miss this. This word is most used in the Old Testament to describe when God rescues his people or when God is our strength. He's our ezer. But in this passage, that title is given to Eve. And so it's not saying that Eve is less than Adam or subordinate to Adam. It's saying that she is the one who rescues him. She is the one who is his strength. She is the one who provides for Adam what he cannot provide for himself. And I think it's interesting that this word is used mostly to talk about God's uh, rescuing his people because I think there's some other insight in here and that is this, that most of the time when God rescues his people, when God gives strength to his people, he chooses to do it through other people, all right? So this is God at work, but it's God at work in Eve. This is not about setting up a hierarchy in marriage. Uh, it, it is not saying that Eve is lacking. It is saying Adam is lacking. And yet, it is true for Eve as well. Adam is Eve's ezer as well. 
God has created us in such a way that we by ourselves cannot do or live the life that God has called us to live without community, without companionship. And he makes that very clear at the very beginning, at the very creation of man. But there's a second word here, and the word is kinegdo. He says, I want to make a helper suitable. Now, this is an interesting Hebrew word because it's actually a fusion of three Hebrew words, which is fairly common in the Bible, to bring a joint meaning. And it literally means one standing against or one standing facing or one standing opposite. And it literally means that a a, a person who is suitable, a helper who is suitable, is one who stands in the way. One who stands in opposition, one who confronts, one who asks the tough questions, one who slows us down is what it's saying. And so when he created that man and there was a, there was a missing component, a component of community, he said, I want to give someone who will rescue him, will be a strength, will be an encouraging force, but also one who will confront and hold him accountable. Friends, we need both. Now here, here, here's the truth. All of us like this part of it, don't we? Not so much, all right? And here's another truth. We all have a tendency to lean to one of these or the others. There there are some of you who are here who are great easers in relationships, but you rarely call people into account. You you rarely confront people who need confronting, and we need both. There are some of us who lean toward being a conegdo. If, If there's 10 things going on and nine of those things are positive and one is negative, guess what we're going to point out? They're going to nitpick. By the way, these people are annoying to be with. They're depressing. What the scripture is telling us, we need both. We need that balance in our life. A real quick survey. How many of us, you don't raise your hand on this, how many of us have a tendency to lean toward being that cheerleader and go get them and you did a great job getting up underneath the load Identify yourselves. How many of us have that tendency to always be pushing and think, well, I need to, you know, I don't want them to get too high on themselves. I always got to cut them down. You know, I got to be telling them what's wrong and how they can improve and it's never good enough. These folks need to choose to do more of this. And these folks here need to choose to do more of these. If we're going to be the community, the family, have the marriage that God has created for us. For us to be that help suitable, the one who loves, the one who encourages, the one who gets up underneath the load when the other person cannot, and yet when the situation calls for it, confronts and questions and says, now hey, slow down and hey, what's up with that? All to love the other person. Without both, We will not be the people that God created us to be. Now, the marriage relationship lends itself to this kind of balance, but the truth is every healthy relationship needs that balance of the Ezar and the Konegdo. All of them, the, the, the coach and the student, the employer and the employee, the parent and the child. And the parent and the child is a perfect example of this. Follow this, if you will. Here comes a child in with some homework from algebra. And the Ezor says, oh, bless your heart. Let me do that assignment for you. And the kid never learns how to do math. 
And then there are the Connecto parents that say, figure it out. I had to do it when I was in school. You'll figure out some way to do it. Guess what, guys? We need both. And what does it mean to have both? To say, hey, honey, sit down. Let's look and tell me what the teacher said today. Uh, let's look at the chapter. What does the chapter say? Well, try this. Let me watch while you do this. Well, have you thought about this instead? You see, it's a lot easier to do everything for your child or do nothing for your child. The hard part is to be a parent, to be an easier connecto, and to stand in there and when appropriate to get up underneath the load and when appropriate put your hand to the plow for, uh, uh, ask them to put their hand to the plow. God calls us to that balance in relationship. Now, here's a question I have for you. Do you have someone who's an easier connecto in your life? Have you given people permission? Have you given people access? One of the best scriptures I know on this is found in Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter, verse 9 through 12. It's listed there in your worship guide. Look what it says. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one who lifts up his, one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warmed alone? If one can overpower him who's alone, two can resist. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Now he tells us there that there are four reasons that we want to move from isolation to community. One is return. Verse 9 says that they have a greater return for their labor. Guys, God put us on a team for a reason. And we always do better on a team. We do it better as a team as a couple. We do as better as a team as a family. We do it better as a team as a church. In the New Testament, he used the illustration of the body and he says, the hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. Every part of the body in that metaphor in, in 1 Corinthians, the, the, the 12th chapter talks about everybody part is important. And here's what he's saying. Don't miss this. There's no one single body part that is as efficient or effective as the whole together. And so when we move into community, we have a better return for our labor. The second thing he says there in verse 10 is that there is someone to rescue us when we fall down. Let me ask you something. When you fall down, who's there to pick you up? If you fall down physically, who's there to pick you up? You fall morally or spiritually. Who's there to pick you up? I get a letter almost every single week from somebody who's in a life group telling me how great life groups are. And if you're new here, life groups are the small Bible study groups that meet. Uh, on Sunday morning, we have life groups that meet at 9.30, and those people go to worship at 11. Then we have uh, life groups at 11. They go to church uh, at 9.30 on Saturday night. Life groups meet right after our Saturday night service. Uh, a letter that I received just a few weeks ago, and I get letters like this all the time. It says, hi, Steve, we never, we've been members of Lake Point for the last seven years and been actively involved in our life group, but never really grasped the importance of being a part of this group until the last three months of our lives. On April 17th, my husband Josh and I welcomed our third girl, Harper Joy, to the world. She was nearly five weeks early and was immediately admitted to the NICU at Baylor Hospital. We spent 10 days there so she could take all of her feedings during those 10 days, members of our life groups visited and brought gifts and foods, and we received texts and cards and prayers. There were also two pastors who came from the church to pray for us and our sweet girl. We received a handwritten letter from our Lake Point prayer team, 
And we even got a handwritten letter from you, which is framed in Harper's Nursery. Then she says, just kidding. <laughs> a few weeks after Harper came home, she began to run a high fever. We took her to the ER to find out that she had a urinary tract infection. We spent three days in the hospital. We were sent home only to go back two weeks later when she got a kidney infection. This time she was in the hospital for eight days on IV antibiotics. During those eight days, we had so many visits from the members of our life group. They brought us snacks and drinks and dinner and lunch and lots of coffee. They even brought enough food to feed the nurses, the nurses and the other families in the hospital. I'm often asked what it's like to go to such a big church. Some have even asked, how can the thousands of members of your church truly be ministered to? And how can members use their spiritual gifts in such a large setting? My answer is by joining and getting involved in a life group. You can clap about that if you'd like. I knew you wanted to. Who is there to pick you up when you need to be rescued? Uh, thirdly, in verse 8 of Ecclesiastes 4, it talks about warmth. How can one be warmed alone? I love that question. How can one be warmed alone? Uh, I, I put it another way, how can you hug yourself? It, I've tried. It doesn't work. It really doesn't. Sometimes we get down. Sometimes we get discouraged. We just need somebody to give us a hug. Those of you who know me really well, you know that I have a tendency over the years to run out of gas. Some of you have picked me up on the side of the road. <laughs> Thanks to technology, I now have a car where I can push a button and it will tell me how many more miles I have before I run out. And so I keep punching. And when I get down to two blocks, I know now. <laughs> and I go home and change cars with Marsha. <laughs> All of us have an emotional gauge. What happens is we leak, don't we? Life's tough out there. This thing called life in a fallen world can get tough sometimes. And what happens sometimes is we get low and we need people close enough to us that they can look on the dashboard of our eyes and see that our emotional tank is low. And they can step in and they can provide the encouragement. They can rescue us and provide the strength that we need. And then he talks about protection in verse 12. He says, a strand of three cords is not easily broken. Now, in the day that this was written, the only combat they knew about was hand-to-hand -hand combat. And it made a lot of sense when, it, when, it, when they thought about if there's several people, they can be back-to-back -back and fighting. And if you were back-to-back, -back, two of you or three of you on the same team, that means that nothing or no one could sneak up on you without you being prepared. And they, they knew what it was to literally have your back. And so he talks about the importance of community in that you have a better return. You have someone to rescue you when you fall down. You have someone who can keep you warm. You have someone who can provide protection for you. But if that's true, if, if it is true that it's so important, why do we find ourselves many times isolated? I, I think one reason is that we get busy, don't we? And we have that tendency to move toward accomplishing tasks rather than investing in relationships. It costs time to invest in relationships. Some of us are busy because we're too social, very frankly. We just left a, a book of the study of Proverbs. In Proverbs 18, 24, it says, A man of too many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And what he's doing there is he's discerning for us that it's not just about relationships. It's about doing relationship deep with people. Sometimes what keeps us from 
uh, community is our mobility. Every year, one out of six Americans move. And there's this tendency, if you move a lot, or that's been your pattern, that you get to a place and say, well, I'm not going to sink down roots because I'm just going to move. Friends, it's actually the opposite. If you're going to move quickly, you need to more quickly sink down roots. Because we still need community. Even if we're moving around, we need community. And some of you have put off getting in a life group or developing close Christian friends because you say, well, I'm just going to have to move again. That's the reason to do it quickly. Sometimes we don't get into community because of fear. Some of you have a fear of strangers. And it's extremely difficult for you to walk into a room or into a home where there's 25 or 30 other people and strike up new relationships. I know that's difficult, but here's what I also know. If God has commanded us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together and moving into those communal relationships, he will give you the strength to do that very hard thing. And what I want to say is it's worth the pain. There is a price tag on it, but it's worth it. Some are not afraid of strangers. They're afraid of intimacy because here's what they're afraid of. They are afraid that if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. I mean, just stay far enough away because if I get close enough to anyone, they're going to learn about my temper. They're going to learn about my temptations. They're going to learn about my, my uh, uh, personality, and then they're not going to love me. But what we don't understand is that you cannot be loved unless you're known. They don't love you if you stand afar. They love the image that you're projecting, so it means you're not loved at all. And you've got to risk rejection if you're going to enjoy being loved. And then pride, like Samson, keeps a lot of us from moving into that. God created the church for a lot of reasons. Very, very important, eternal reasons. But one of the reasons that he created the church is for community. If you look in Acts, the second chapter, one of my favorite scriptures is Acts 2, 41, 42. It says this, and so then those who had received his word were baptized, and there was that day added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Let me just say the obvious. First of all, verse 41, the very first church was a mega church. Okay, it was. And there are a lot of folks who are down on big churches. And I'll tell you what, friends, listen to this very carefully. Big is not bad. Bad is bad. Okay? More importantly, big is not bad. Isolation is bad. 3,000 people. And in this same book, it says, and they were adding to their number day by day. Those were being saved. The church was being what the church was supposed to do. And that is going into the community, being salt and light. And as a result of that, they got big. They got bigger. So how in the world did they care for people? How did they have meaningful relationships? Life groups. Well, they're not called life groups in here, but you read it. It's a life group. Lake Point didn't invent life groups. A real-life church did not invent life groups. God invented life groups, and it was not a later-on thing. The first day of the first church, that was God's answer for community. You know what that means? We can reach as many people as we want, and we can still care for each other. We can still be intimate. We can still do life together. Several years ago, I received a phone call that no pastor likes to get, and it was a call that a young preschooler had fallen into a swimming pool and had been rushed to Presbyterian Hospital here in Rockwall. Jumped in my car, I went to the hospital. By the time I got there, 
and broke into the emergency trauma room. The parents were standing in the corner weeping and praying and I could tell immediately that this little girl was already gone. The medical personnel were doing a heroic job and they kept working but you could see it in their eyes. They knew that the little girl was gone. And I stood in the corner and prayed with those parents. Let me just say those parents are people of faith and they knew that one day because of God's redemption, they would see their little girl again, and they will, and they will spend eternity with her. But as I stood there in the corner, I, I said, God, how do we help these parents until that day? And when all was pronounced, we stepped out of that trauma room and we stepped into the waiting room. And there were over 40 people from those people's life group that were there. And the men gathered around the men. And the women around the wife began to talk about how to get cars where they needed to go and who was going to keep the kids and how the meals were going to be taken care of. And more important than that, anything that was said or anything that was done, it was called the ministry of presence. They, by being there, were making a commitment. We're not only here this evening, but we will be here tomorrow night and then the next week and the next month and the years to come because we're family. That's what family does. You know, when I show up at any tragedy in our community, I can tell in about 30 seconds if somebody's in a life group. If they're in a life group, I'm not the first one who arrives. And when I have to finally go home and be with my own family, I know that I'm not the last one that leaves. Guys, do not put yourself in isolation. There's so much danger in isolation. I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, hey, Steve, I've got close Christian friends and I've got family. I would never find myself without support. Guys, it's not just about you. There are new people who move to our community every day and they're looking for close Christian friends. They're looking for folks who will stand with them because they don't have any Christian friends and they don't have any family that's either here or in some cases that care. It's about putting yourself in a position not only to be blessed, but it's about putting yourself in a position to bless others. You look at the life of Samson and it is such a sad life. You find him killing a lion and he's all alone. Striking down 30 men in Ashkon, Ashtakon, and he's all alone. He's burning the crops of the Philistines in the Sorek Valley all alone. He flees to the rock of Edom all alone. He kills a thousand Philistines at Lehi, and he's all alone. And then he's tricked and subdued by Delilah and the Philistines. There's nobody to help him. He finds himself in a prison grinding grain. This mighty man of God, uniquely gifted to protect the children of Israel. And he's grinding grain for a bunch of pagans. And even on that very last day of his life as he's chained in the Dagon temple and he prays to God one last time, just give me the strength to pull these walls down. The roof comes crashing down. The Philistines die, and he dies in their midst, alone. In summary, he lives, he struggles, and he dies alone. And it didn't have to be that way. 
God designed something else. But he chose isolation. It didn't have to be that way. Let's thank God for that. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your scripture. Thank you that we don't have to make all the same mistakes that people have made throughout the years. Thank you for creating us, designing us to be people of community. Thank you for creating your church and designing it in such a way, not only as a large group, but as small groups to be a community. Thank you, dear Father, that we're not a large church, that we're a collection of small churches. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.